Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. One of the other addictions that needs our attention is the addiction to sex. This can be as problematic as any other addiction. Dr. Stefan Pasternak is a psychiatrist in Palm Beach County, and he has kindly agreed to talk to us about this. Yes, thank you. You know, in a recent Newsweek magazine article, the cover story was sexual addiction epidemic. And it made an ominous point that over 9 million Americans are considered to have addictive or compulsive sexual behaviors that disrupt their lives. Ever since the problems arose with Tiger Woods and other celebrities, we've become increasingly aware that this is a pressing psychological problem for America. So how do we separate a sexual addiction from someone who merely is just particularly sexually active or interested? What, where are the differences? The major difference has to do with the question of control and the driven nature of the behavior. A sexual addiction is not just enjoyment of sex. It's torture. There's more pain than pleasure. People are driven by impulses to engage in acts that are often very extreme. They often engage in sexual behavior for a good part of the day so they can't get work done. When they try to stop, they can't, and there's a loss of control over their behavior. That makes it very different from ordinary sex or even from people who have sexual affairs. Tiger Woods, in many cases, doesn't meet the definition of the sexual addiction. More, he meets the idea of someone who had a number of affairs. But the drivenness and the fact that a person with a sexual addiction is willing to risk their life, their family, in order to pursue sexuality many times a day, regardless of the consequences. And so people may take risks with affairs or, you know, having sex in risque situations, but it's very different than the overwhelming involvement in sex day after day after day and never being able to feel fully satisfied. Is it found equally in both men and women? Uh, Yes, it is. There's no gender difference for that. Men and women have sexual compulsive behaviors and addictions with equal frequency. What about age differences? Is it more in a younger person or is it found across all? uh, It's found across all generations, but obviously sexual desires and drives are more intense from teenage years to the late 40s. You used the word a little while ago that it there's a torture quality to it. Is it a torture to the person who is the addict or the partners? It's a torture for the sexual addict, first of all. The sexual behavior is driven by a number of destructive core beliefs. They feel that they are bad, they are unlovable. They feel that their needs can't be met. And they put all of their eggs, so to speak, for satisfaction and meaning in the sexual basket. And then they suffer shame. They're often driven to extreme acts of lewd behavior, to having sex in strange places, to exposing themselves. Cyber porn and video sex is another problem, and people are spending hours and hours on computers and so they often get fired because the computer networks are monitored so there's a lot of difficulty with this as opposed to someone who may have a fling once in a while or a one-night stand which has complications of its own but at least the person has some sense of control over it and a capacity to stop 
Is it the same as pedophilia? It seems like there would be overlaps. No, pedophilia is an unusual paraphilia. Uh, paraphilia is the term that is part of the official diagnostic nomenclature for sexual disorders. There actually is no specific definition of sexual addiction in the psychiatric terminology. It is not an official diagnosis. Pedophilia is officially classified as a paraphilia. It's a crime. There's a spectrum of behavior here. That's what we're talking about. If you start on one side, the person who occasionally goes to a strip club or occasionally turns on their computer or goes to a cyber porn site, then they escalate. And now they're going to strip clubs more often and they're going to more and more pornography. For them to cross the boundary now to get to the extreme side of rape or pedophilia, talking about a much more severely disturbed person with loss of reality testing, lack of empathy for anyone, and no concern for the consequences of their behavior. So a person could be addicted to pedophilia, but you have to put it at the far end of the spectrum. I understand what you're saying. Most people with a sexual addiction do not step over into the legal aspects. The best idea is to think of it as a spectrum from mild disorders to the most severe ones. In a mild disorder, a person will have more frequent sexual fantasies, more visits to strip clubs, or more use of video porn, or more compulsive masturbation than the average person. You then move that further along to people spending more time, more money, more frequently, and exposing themselves to more risks as they are in the grip of these sexual compulsions. When you get to pedophilia, that is the most extreme. That and rape murder are the two extremes of sexual disorders. Most people who have sexual addiction do not get involved in criminal acts unless they get caught in picking up prostitutes on the street or something like that. So with this explosion of the pornographic sites on the web and the ease with which one can get to them, that it almost gives him the sense that he is not alone. And that might have the tendency to normalize some of his deviancy. Is, is that reasonable thinking? Cybersex is reported as the beginning or the catalyst for compulsive sexual acting out and sexual addiction or various types of perversions such as fetishes, bondage, and domination by over 70% of those who seek treatment. The sophistication of computer porn represents a tectonic shift in our sexual culture. A lot of people would still find it amazing that it is as common as it is. It seems like it's part of another world, but what you're saying, it's more in the neighborhood than we realize. Cyber sex is a whole new entity that has emerged in our culture. The whole language is very different. There are virtual sexual encounters online now when a person will go to a website and get connected to someone else who is performing particular sexual acts. They charge for it. What has overwhelmed a lot of patients, I've had a number of men tell me that they were doing pretty well. They occasionally went to a strip club at a convention or something, 
and then got hooked into one of these websites and they found out that they could have whatever they wanted any time of day or night anywhere in the country or the world and they could arrange it on a computer. And in fact, just as eBay has reviews of people who sell on eBay, so you know if you're getting a reliable provider before you send them the money, they have reviews, apparently, of these cyber sex sites. People are reviewing, oh, Mistress Jones is the best dominatrix in the East Coast. It's an astonishing new world that's scary because it seduces people into patterns of behavior that usually undermine their self-esteem create depression and shame, and then it's not so easy to get out of it. One of the things is they're shifting from three-dimensional sex to two-dimensional sex, somebody on a TV screen. I would imagine that has a very different impact or result. It's more dehumanizing. It creates the illusion of omnipotence, and that's part of what the addiction is, the sense that you can have whatever you want, and because it's two-dimensional, you're not concerned about the needs of the other person. Therefore, what is so abnormal about sexual addiction is that it is not usually in the context of a long-term relationship involving tenderness, mutuality, recognition, uh, sympathy, empathy, and so forth, and concern about the sexual experience of the partner. When a person is on a website, a commercial webcam, that allows people to exchange sexual videos, and perform online and get paid for it. No awareness of the other person as other than a thing. And both people are dehumanized by it. So how do we treat them? It's a very serious problem. And depending upon where a person is on the spectrum, we have more or less success. If a person comes in with a tendency towards multiple affairs and they're starting to get into cyber porn and they're early in the cycle, they're a lot easier to treat. Part of the problem is people often are resistant to treatment because they are having to give up something that they feel is pleasurable. The other thing I just wanted to refer to is the neurobiology of this. While we believe that sexual addictions and compulsions and perversions often are the consequence of one sort of adverse fantasy or experience of childhood that impairs sexuality. There's no question that there is a biological factor as well. It's harder to treat people who are long in the addiction cycle because we believe that the neural substrates of their sexuality have been changed. Let me explain what I mean by that. Normal pleasure increases the secretion of dopamine. The final common pathway for activation of pleasure is in the nucleus accumbens, a part of the brain which sends signals to other brain centers about pleasure and reward and how to make decisions to get pleasure. In drug and sexual addictions, there seem to be different microcircuits that get activated when pleasure is overwhelming. If a person takes cocaine, they escalate to a different neurocircuit in the nucleus accumbens. If a person is having multiple dancers rubbing all over his or her body and having multiple orgasms and every sexual action being performed on them, that ricochets throughout the nucleus accumbens and activates another pathway that now you have to try to deactivate with treatment. So let's come back to treatment. There is no one treatment that fits all. 
the first part of the situation is to carefully evaluate the patient and understand where they are on the spectrum of illness. For some patients, some medications can help. If a person is hypersexual because of a bipolar disorder and you control the bipolar disorder, often the hypersexuality goes away. The same thing can happen if a person is fighting depression with sexual behavior and you treat the depression, sexual acting out will go away. On the other hand, if a person has a compulsive disorder involving perverse sexual fantasies and childhood trauma that has activated a need to inflict on others what may have been done to them, now you're getting into harder and harder to treat. Here is where the 12-step programs and sexual treatment groups can be very helpful in getting people to confront their behavior, take responsibility for it, break the addiction cycle, and cope with their destructive core beliefs. So individual psychotherapy is very helpful. Group therapy is helpful. I mean, I've seen a few patients who were spending 14 to 16 hours a day in one sexual activity or another. That person needs a residential treatment setting where they can be controlled, sort of withdrawn from their behavior, not have access to computers, and have to face the awful nature of their inner dread that the sexual behavior has covered up. Now, there are some unusual cases that come up from time to time. There's a, a report of a man who had a sexual foot fetish in which his preferred organ was to rub his genitals on women's feet and he couldn't get an erection any other way and this was disturbing his marriage and they treated him with a drug called Lupron and the bizarre fantasies and compulsions went away and they, they got along just fine. So there's a lot of research going on here and a lot of change. At the same time, our culture is causing a lot of confusion. We are wrestling with new ideas about gender and sex and what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman, and these create difficulties for many teenagers as well. Is treatment then a lifelong treatment, like somebody goes to AA, they basically have to be, it may not be lifelong. Yes, depending where you are on the spectrum. If you have a severe sexual addiction, it is a lifelong undertaking because you are always vulnerable to relapse. And people have to make a great long-term commitment. For example, they have to stay away from computer sex they have to learn to stay away from strip clubs. In our society, there are so many cues bombarding people about sexual ideas that you know, a person trying to recover from a sexual addiction is immediately assaulted from every direction with more and more sexual messages. It, you know, it makes it hard uh, for people to break the habit. So it, it is a long-term commitment for people over, over many years. Some of the newer medications can help 
some of the antidepressant medications reduce libido, which can give a person who's trying to control themselves a chance to tone it down before they get into trouble with their husband or wife or get sexually transmitted disease. There are many strategies and approaches that have to be thought out on an individualized case-by-case basis. Group therapy of one form or another, and there are many sexual addiction groups and centers now, those are usually essential for helping people confront their problem and to see how others are struggling with it too. Is there any sense that this is more common in people who during childhood or adolescence were sexually abused or had some other major trauma? Yes, there is. We have some MRI evidence from people who were sexually abused as children. That areas of their cortex are permanently scarred in some way and leads to an effort to try to reverse the passive helplessness of child abuse by taking vengeance on some other person. The man who might have been molested by his babysitter now goes out and starts molesting children or young women when he's grown up and is trying to get the upper hand over his passive helplessness. So trauma of one kind or another is a major factor in the causation of sexual addictions. It would also seem to me that the therapist would have to be rather sophisticated in his skills in order to be able to take this on. This sounds like a very complex, intensive There's a lot of hard work to doing this. It's not a casual talking to the patient, much more serious psychotherapy. There are different levels of patient sophistication, too. For many patients, it can be pretty straightforward, confronting their core destructive beliefs, digging up the details of childhood trauma that set them up for this. What was their sexual education? See, here is a problem in our society that you've reminded me to think about. It was very important for us to do sexual education in our school systems. But what we forgot was to include relationship education as well. So people learned more and more about their bodies and how to seek or give pleasure. But they lost the fact that this was supposed to be part of a relationship. And we have not corrected that problem. And in a society with a 50% divorce rate, we see that relationship skills are really lagging behind. One of my big concerns is with the profusion of video games and handheld computers and cell phones and stuff like that. Kids get their satisfaction online. And that is fueling a lot of the cyber sex stuff too. It's a lot easier for an angry college student to go online and, and masturbate with, a, with some girl dancing in front of him than it is for him to go talk to his girlfriend, make up, accept the fact that he did something wrong, fix the relationship, and learn to make love. And the big difference between having sex and making love, that's another issue in our society incredibly important but basic materials that we really do need to think about and talk to our ourselves and our children. Stefan Pasternak is a psychiatrist in Palm Beach County, Florida, who has taken us on a quick tour of a very complex but an incredibly necessary topic for us all to better understand. Dr. Pasternak, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.